you can go out and market your brand and talk about your business and simply share what you're learning. And you're already doing the first step of marketing, which is getting your name out there. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today, our guest is Krista Testani. Krista is a multifamily real estate investor and syndicator based out of Long Island, New York. Today, we're going to talk about contract negotiations and some specific experiences that she has had in her multifamily investment experience. If you're out there investing in multifamily real estate, this is certainly one to listen to because you're going to learn some important things that could come up in your deals that you should really watch out for and plan for and just expect uh, so that it's not unexpected. And just as a note, there's a little bit of an issue with the audio, but we fixed that about 11 or 12 minutes in. So that goes away. So don't mind that too much, but you're really going to enjoy this one. I certainly enjoyed recording to it and I've enjoyed going back and listening. And without further ado, here's Krista. Krista, thank you for joining us today. You are very welcome. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to talk with you about this. Today, we're going to talk about contract negotiations and asset management. I will say secrets that you've <laughs> learned in your experience with multifamily. Uh, before we get into that, though, would you mind telling our listeners about your background and getting into multifamily, what you're doing uh, right now? Sure, absolutely. So I started out as a lawyer by trade but disgruntled lawyer, sort of, because I really hated <laughs> practicing. And 2007, I, I stopped practicing. And it was actually, I was kind of fumbling around a little bit. Everyone's like, oh, how'd you get in real estate? And did you have a passion for it? It's kind of like something that snuck up on me. My husband actually suggested that he wanted to do something with real estate investing. He was a retired fireman. If anyone knows firemen, they all have these trades. They all do these other things. And we partnered up with a few of his firemen friends and we started flipping. We started buying distressed homes on Long Island in 2009. And there was plenty foreclosures back then, right? Right after the 2008 crash. So plenty of inventory and we bought rehab sold. And we did that for a couple of years, but I wanted to scale and I couldn't really figure out a business model to scale in that world. I just couldn't figure it out. Not to say that other people aren't doing it, but I couldn't figure it out. I started looking for information on what I could do different, found a coach on Long Island that was into multifamilies and, and had a coaching platform at that time. Unfortunately, he doesn't have that platform anymore, but I was lucky enough to get in as a student, studied uh, with him for a year, 2011 to 2012, got into my syndicated right out of the gate, syndicated my first 20 unit deal in Ohio in 2013. Then I bought a 36 unit in Tennessee a year later, 56 unit in Atlanta that same month, closed two deals at once. Nice. And I've really been in the Georgia market since then. I mean, since 2014, We've purchased a 56 unit, and then in December, we just took down a 174 unit, and uh, we're about to take down a 100 unit in Augusta. So I'm heavily in entrenched in the Georgia market at this point, having really networked and set, you know, I really have a vast 
deep network, managers, brokers, everything, you know, everything that you need to just kind of move forward at a faster pace. And that's what we're trying to do. Nice. Faster. So you, scale. it's interesting that you started. Uh, I don't want to get too bogged down in all this, but it's interesting you started uh, by syndicating a twenty unit. And normally, I think of a twenty unit property of just being too small to make sense for syndication, given the fixed costs, legal costs of putting together a syndication compared to the size cost of a twenty unit property. I don't know, you might be doing, you might have $20,000 in syndication legal paperwork costs. How did that yeah. deal turn out uh, and so that it made sense uh, as a syndication? I think because the cost for, for syndication was not that high. Uh, you're right, because it was a 20-unit deal. The structure was different. There was less involved because it was a debt structure for the investors. Interestingly enough, it was a debt structure, but I gave them a kick all right. You're right. We can't go, we can't go off on, on tangents, but I will tell you this. It was a debt structure. So they were not supposed to get a kick at sale, but I turned the property unexpectedly. I turned the property over so quickly and made such a quick profit that I gave them a kick of equity when they didn't have, you know, there was nothing in the paperwork that said I needed to do that. But why do you think I did that? And that's what I was trying to convince my partners who I'm no longer partners with. Mm. Why would I do something like that? When there's enough money on the table, why would I give them a little equity kick? You want them to come back for more later and reinvest. Of course. And there was another deal lined up and they all signed up so fast it made my head spin. So, you know, just to show them how much I appreciate it because it was the first deal I ever did and they jumped in and it was family and friends. So to answer your question, it was a small deal. My costs were not as much as the bigger deals. It's why I was able to do the syndication and it'd be worth the while. And again, it was a debt structure. So they weren't actually going to get as much as an equity structure would have given them if I had done that deal that way. Right. But it was it was too small for an equity structure. And it worked out fine and they did roll over. And those investors are with me to this day, a 2013 buy. And they're with me to this day. Awesome. Rolling over. Yeah. That's what it's all about. You know, the goal uh, from a passive investing standpoint, I think should be to invest or seek to invest with syndicators and partner with people who you're both in it for the long term. I mean, 2013, what we're six years later, and they're still investing with you, you still have them coming into your deal. So that's great on both ends. And hopefully it, it keeps going. Yes. But you know, like I said, we don't want to get bogged down in that too much. We're here to talk about contract negotiations. So we need to update our contract negotiation skills and standards, if you will, from say a 2011 to 2013 standard to the 2019 market standard where a seller can say, no, this is a due diligence term. This is what it's going to be because there's probably another buyer right around the corner who is willing to accept a term. That's it. That's exactly right. Taylor, my point is if you want to stay competitive in the market the way it is right now, there's certain things that you should probably just give up and not try to fight for. So don't try to fight for, you know, getting, you know, the due diligence clock starting after the last document. Resign yourself to the fact that you need to, uh, the due diligence is going to be 30 days, a hard start date and a hard end date. And that's it. Don't, because they will, there are so many buyers out there they will move on to the next buyer so quickly because they're going to realize if they see 
And I've been on the seller side. Okay. I just closed a deal. I just sold a deal Friday. If you start seeing a contract being pulled apart and a lot of nitpicky stuff being asked for that is just not standard requests anymore, you are going to move on to the next guy really quickly because there is someone lined up with an offer that's probably, you know, as strong or in, in the same ballpark. So don't nitpick on that issue. And here's another big surprise that people will be surprised about in this market, as opposed to, again, 2011, 2012, when I came into the market, at least in Georgia, where I am, guess what's disappeared? Financial contingencies. Mm, yes. Financial contingencies. This was something that really I only learned when I took down the 174 unit, which was only in December of this past 2018. And I was working with a broker that I had taken down two deals with previously. So he knew me well. I know him. So I shoot him over my LOI and he goes, uh, Krista, when was the last time you closed a deal? And it had been a while. Embarrassingly, it had been 18 months almost, or almost two years. And he goes, nobody puts financial contingencies in their LOIs anymore. I was like, so what does that mean? That means exactly what it says. It means you cannot pull out of a contract anymore late in the game because something happened with your lender and you no longer have the financial capacity to close on the deal. Mm, so for those out there who might be asking, well, what's they can't force me to buy the property. What is at stake if you can't get the property financed and you cannot buy the property because you cannot get financing? Then what are you as the potential buyer who got thwarted? What do you lose? Uh, you lose that deposit. You certainly lose your deposit immediately. And also be careful. I mean, depending on what happened, you lost some credibility with the broker. Yeah you know, because he or she is in the business of putting parties together that get deals done. And, and not to say this hasn't never happened. And I, you know, I'm not going to speak for brokers, but you lose a little credibility. They'll be uh, much more cautious working with you the second time around if something like that happens. Now, you know, there's not, to, listen, most people as a seller, I'm in the business of not taking people's deposits. I want to close a deal. So it's not to say that if something happened and you can't go to the table and try to negotiate for more time to get the deal done. So what I'm going to recommend is, if, you know, be very transparent every step of the way, what's going on with your lender. If lender starts throwing up any roadblocks or red flags, talk about it with the broker. You know, make sure the broker is very much aware of what you're going through so that if something happens, a, he's not surprised, and B, he can argue more on your behalf for an extension for you to try to line up another lender. And I would also say, have relationships with lender B and C, even though you chose lender A for this deal. Make sure that you floated this deal in front of another lender as well, someone that you can go to if the ceiling falls and suddenly your lender pulls out, which has happened to at least two of my colleagues that I know last minute lenders have pulled out. So this does happen. This does go on. And again, a seller who wants to sell, if he knows that you have the means to jump back in the game, get another lender lined up, yes, it means it's going to delay the deal, but it may be worth it for the seller to stick with you than to start all over with the new seller. But be ready because that seller will probably ask for another deposit from you 
to get that extension. Yep. And that deposit's going to go hard immediately. So yes, you know, yes, buyer, I can give you another 45 days while you run around now trying to get a new lender. You need to put another $25,000 down hard for that extension. Yeah. So we're talking some pretty, you know, to me, I mean, pretty big numbers here that we have at risk. I mean, for your offers that you're finding you're competitive right now, just to so you earn as money deposits, what are you finding in terms of a percentage of the deal and, you know, days hard, things like that? Okay. Yeah. There's some very standard. So, you know, these 50 units, a hundred units, even the hundred, believe it or not, the 174 unit, they only took a $50,000 deposit. Wow. So minimum is 50. Yeah. I would have expected that guy. We did an LOI with 50 and I anticipated him coming back and asking for a hundred and he didn't. So I was like, great. But I'm going to say the minimum is 50 for these mid-sized deals. And the larger the deal, you know, you can expect, you know, 100 to be then be the minimum for, I'm going to say, you know, 150 units and up. You're going to probably only be competitive if you at least offer a $100,000 deposit down. And, it, you know, it could keep going up. I mean, there comes a point where you're not going to put a half a million dollars down, no matter how big the deal is. But, yeah, you're, you're easily looking at, in the world that I'm in now, it's, it's probably minimally at this point, $100,000 deposit for that initial deposit. And then if you want extensions, again, you got to put more money down to get extensions. Yeah. It's like you're buying an extension, basically. Ooh. Yeah. You have to put more, you know, it's, it's earnest money. It's showing that you're earnest about closing on the property and you're, not, you're not wasting time. You're really putting in the work to do it. So you have a few uh, specific situations that uh, we wanted to discuss here about uh, some of your, let's say, contract negotiation uh, recent experiences. So, uh, you know, that we want to get into those on some of your uh, recent properties. Yeah. yeah. What I love about doing things like this, podcasts or, you know, b speaking at meetups, I love giving out little tidbits of experiences that I just went through where there was some type of learning lesson that I didn't get from the coaching, the books, whatever, because it's just, it's just this minutia, but it's important minutia. Yes. It's, it's something that could happen to a listener. So I love sharing. So something recently just came up. This is the first point I want to talk about in our contract negotiations as a seller. So this is the deal that we just sold on Friday. And we had what's called a yield maintenance pre-penalty, which means it's not, I don't, I don't even know how to explain yield maintenance because it's that far above my pay grade, but it's not a step down. A step down pre-penalty is, okay, in year one, your prepay penalty is 5% of the loan amount. In, in year two, it's 4% of the loan amount. That's what I like. Year three, 3% of loan amount because it's a set figure that you can figure out. So when you're working on your exit strategies, which by the way, everyone should be working on their exit strategies when they're buying the yes. deal. Okay? <laughs> when you're working on your exit strategies, you know what it's going to cost to get out of that loan. Yield maintenance does not allow you to do that. It is this weird equation that you know the financial world comes up with. The only thing that I could tell you is it has an inverse relationship to interest rates. So if interest rates go down, your yield maintenance penalty goes up. If interest rates go up, your yield maintenance penalty goes down. Okay, an inverse relationship to the direction of where interest rates are. So to clarify some of this, if I can, before we continue on, Move on. It's, it's something from the lender to make sure that they're still 
making money that they the some amount of money that they want to make. And since you sold on Friday, as we talk right now, uh, mid August 2019, interest rates are going down. So as interest rates are going down, yield maintenance penalty is going up based on that relationship that you just shared. Is that correct? Absolutely. Oh. In fact, when we first got an estimate of what our yield maintenance pre-penalty payment would be, it was 90000 40 days later or 50 days later when we sold, it was 124000 Interest oh, rates boy. had gone down. Yield maintenance went up. Okay. So now, so it's uncomfortable position to be in, especially if you're in this time period where the interest rates, you just, you don't know where anything's going. Every day is just with politically what's going on in the world. Like you just don't know. Right. So, you know, for a long time. Federal Reserve going to Federal Reserve. Yes. So what we did, and I I strongly recommend that everybody do this if they get, because you will get locked into loans where yield maintenance is the only thing that's on the table. I mean, the last deal we just took down, we've strongly argued for a step down penalty for the reasons that I stated why it's it's so much easier. And it was not feasible. The lender was willing to offer it, but the interest rates that they were offering at didn't make it feasible. The, the deal got much more attractive and the lending terms got much more attractive if and only if we agreed to yield maintenance. So this particular deal that we have right now was interesting. It was a yield maintenance prepay penalty for the first four years. And then after four years, it dropped down to a uh, step down pre-penalty. So in our minds, we were not going to sell until year four, because in year four or the end of year four, it was now a solid prepay penalty that we can calculate. So we were not planning to sell. However, I am in Atlanta. It is an extremely hot market. The moment you buy a property, you're getting cold calling and letters in the mail. People are looking to buy your property. So we had many offers on this deal over the years. And a recent offer that came in, we just couldn't resist. So we decided to sell early, but we have this issue of yield maintenance. So what we did is in our pro forma, we plugged in what we, we called the lender and said, if we sold today, what would yield maintenance be? He said 90 grand. Okay. We put in 90 into our pro forma and then we started tweaking and we kept pushing that 90 up. And again, and then you're seeing all the, the domino effect on the returns and we pushed the yield maintenance penalty to a point where we said, all right, if it goes over 120000 according to our pro forma, this deal is not worth selling because we are trying to sell in order to give back beautiful, nice returns to our investors who it's our fiduciary responsibility to do that. So we're certainly not going to sell to sell early, I should say, right? To return less than good returns. We negotiated in that contract the following language. If our prepay penalty exceeds $120,000, we have the option to cancel the deal within 24 hours of close. So it's like a ripcord that we put in the contract that says even as late as, because we weren't sure when we were going to lock in. At that point in time, when we were negotiating the contract, we weren't sure what the lender would do, like how late in the game they would give us the number. Mm -hmm. So we said within 24 hours of close, we can cancel this contract if we can provide proof that the lender's prepay penalty went beyond 120. And the buyer agreed to it. Now, people, <laughs> get ready for this. We To get that clause in there, we did have to agree to take on 
reasonable and proven due diligence costs of the seller. So we said to seller, if we have to do this, and it will be unfortunate if we do, we are going to pay your due diligence costs, you know, your inspection fees, your, but we also capped it because we wanted to make sure that it didn't get out of hand. So we made sure that it wasn't more than, you know, I think we said, uh, you know, $35,000 or something like that for his due diligence inspections and lender fees. And he agreed to it. Now, the reality of the situation is if we had to pull that ripcord, what we anticipated may have happened is that seller may have wanted to look and see, well, how much more are you really paying in your prepay? And maybe there would have been a negotiation where he would have taken on to, to get the deal done because he wanted that deal, yeah, right? Yeah. So it would have been very disappointing for him and his investors to walk away. And maybe he could have absorbed paying another 20 grand if our prepay went up by 20 or 30 or whatever. So that could have happened. But what we wanted to ensure we wanted to ensure an out clause to protect our investors and ourselves from, you know, it would have been a bad deal for us to sell if that pre-penalty went up too high. Yeah. So this is all, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back because we're trying to put myself in your shoes here, because when this posts, it'll be, you know, later from now when we're talking, the recent Federal Reserve decision on whether or not they were going to lower interest rates or keep them the same and all that, it wasn't that long ago. And, you know, I can see where your lender's position was, well, I don't know what's going to happen. So I don't want to give you an answer with too much time in between when you actually close. Like, I can't give you that much of a head start, but you need to know so you can negotiate your contract. So a 24-hour cancellation period before closing. It's crazy. Yeah. It's nuts. That's crazy. Is Crazy is right. And what they gave us was they gave us, it's not like we locked in a month before close or two weeks before close. They gave us our prepay penalty lock-in five days before close. That's crazy. Five days and not business days, five days, you know? So if there was a Friday and Saturday in there, that meant, you know, we were locking in on a Thursday to close on a Monday or a Tuesday. So it wasn't like they gave us that much more time than the 24 hours, but we were like, wow, thank God we did that because it really could have swung in a really bad bad way had we not protected ourselves. Wow. Uh, but that's the craziness with yield maintenance, you know, and don't think for a second because everyone, and we said it too, we just won't sell. You know, we mm -hmm. just won't sell. You never know when an opportunistic sale is going to come up. And one of the, re the other reasons that we wanted to sell, you know, even though it would, you know, yes, a prepay penalty uh, that's more you know, a step down is more predictable. So someone's going to say, well, why didn't you wait a year and a half? I think we only had a year and a half to wait. Well, there's a heated market going on in Atlanta. So we were getting per door pricing that we weren't so sure we would get a year and mm -hmm. a half from now. Yeah. Also just with, I don't want to call it a bubble, but there is a, a little bit of a frenzy going on in the world in general and market adjustments are coming. So with market adjustments and the cooling off of a particular market, like which may happen in Atlanta, we really felt, well, we can wait three or four years to get that known prepay penalty, but we may be selling at $15,000 a door less. So at the end of the day, yeah, you know, it's weighing your options, your risks, and it would be great to return the money in your pocket now is worth more than it is two years from now. So let's return it to them now. And oh, hey, by the way, we have another deal lined up for them so they can roll it over if they want. So, and that's just 
beautiful timing that, you know, the universe has provided to us. So I'm very grateful. Yeah. That saying a bird in the hand is worth as much as two in the bush. That's definitely true, especially when you have a real sale with a solid return on the table and you don't know what the situation is going to be in a year and a half. But then the question becomes, all right, well, now I have my cash back. Now, what am I going to go buy? I'm, I certainly don't want to sit on cash right now because the world is not on fire. It will be eventually again at some point in the future. But right now, as we speak, it's not on fire. So what am I going to go buy? And hopefully I'm not going to be that excited buyer that we're selling our property to, if that's right. Right, right. And, you know, and it's our job. I mean, it's what we do for a living. It's our job to try to line up the next opportunity as quickly as possible. I mean, this is a unique situation where literally we're cutting checks to people and they're going to be giving them right back because we're going to be closing in, in another 30 days. You know, some of our deals have been six, seven months apart and our investors, some of them have waited because they really, they know us, like us, trust us, and they want to roll into our deals. And they were very patient and waited. And some investors, you know, there's lots of syndicators out there, lots of opportunities. So we may have lost one or two along the way, but what we will never do, what our team will never do is rush into a deal just to have a deal on the table to roll people's money into. I mean, there's lines that we won't cross. So luckily in this situation, we do have another deal lined up though. So Good. And I don't even want to say luckily, we created that situation because we're out there pounding doors down, you know, looking for the next opportunity for our investors. Luckily, past you put in the work to put current you where you are now, I guess, if, if you want to keep saying luckily, but we don't even want to say luckily anyway. So right. it's a bad habit. It I is think. a bad habit. <laughs> yes. We want to count on ourselves to make those opportunities. So the other uh, scenario, the other, we quick point. To talk about. the other quick point, again, I got burnt. All right. I got burnt on this particular contract. We were buying. And for uh, this one scenario, I'm addressing water sewer, the utility charges for water sewer. In many, many markets, if people are not in them yet, you will eventually discover your water sewer bills usually don't come monthly. They come every two months. Sometimes it could be every three. It depends the market that you're in. I was in Atlanta. We bought a building. We closed, we expected, and it was represented by seller that all the utilities, final bills were paid and were good to go. And uh, we bought the building and lo and behold, two months later, we get a very large water sewer bill that was for the time period right before we bought. And it was about, it was, you know, it was a little chunk of change. It was about $15,000. So it was not ours to the extent that we didn't own the property at the time, but the water sewer department does not care about that. These bills run with the land. They don't run with the physical owner. So the water sewer department isn't going to chase the previous owner to pay that bill. They're going to chase you. And then I had to go and chase the seller. And I, after many weeks and months of chasing, I did get that money from them, but that was time and energy not well spent. Mm. The very simple solution for those of you and not saying this hasn't been done. I think people out there may already know this, but for those of you that don't, at closing, you should be have your attorney require an escrow be set up. You look at the average bills, the average monthly bills for water sewer, let's call it $10,000 a month. You request two months of water sewer payments to be put into escrow, assuming your bills come in every two months in that particular county so that you have a cushion just in case they didn't settle up with the water sewer 
department the way they represented they did. You now have escrow to pull from if you get that bill after you close. So real simple solution. Nobody should really object to it. If no water sewer bill comes in with any back time frame, then you have the escrow agent release the money back to the seller and it should be resolved within 60 days. Yeah. So I, I like that. And, and to put some more, uh, to frame the situation a little bit more, the, the extremeness, uh, I don't know, what of the situation. So you have $15,000 bill. If you're buying at a six cap, which many major markets are trading at a six cap right now, that's a quarter million dollars off of your valuation, or it would be capitalized at a quarter million dollars if that was a difference in your NOI or your, say your T12. That would impact the price that you would have offered on the property in the first place. So it's a huge difference. It's a it's a yeah. big, big deal when that's coming off of your income. And I'll tell you that um, some of these bigger properties, the water sewer, the, that monthly water sewer bill is, can be really big. We're averaging on the hundred and six on the hundred and seventy four unit. We're averaging. Uh, well, we've done some water conservation projects since then, but when we first took over, it was averaging fifteen a month. So two months of bills is thirty thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Oof. <laughs> yeah. So, but what I'm proposing is a very simple fix, real simple, and you know can just save a lot of time and energy down the road. Yeah. Very fair. All right. So we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. So, Krista. Yes. I've got three questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Sure. Are you ready? You're asking right now. Okay. Of course. Okay. <laughs> what are those three questions? Oh, this all is right. Be, I hate these three. I, go ahead. They're no, still like, no, like, no. They're like these deep questions. And all right, go ahead. Shoot. Yeah. All right. Give as long or short an answer as you like. Okay. So first one, what is the best investment in real estate that you've ever made? I guess if we're talking about the difference between the different real estate vehicles, I have made windfall profits investing both passively, passively, and as a sponsor in multifamily. I mean, I, I, it seems like a stupid answer because that's what I do. But I'll give you an example, IRA money, I invest in other people's deals, other colleagues. I can't invest IRA money in my own. And if I'm comparing real estate with the stock market, and I've always felt real estate to be that you won't get windfall profits, but it, because it's a more solid asset, it's more dependable, it's more predictable, you can at least count on some steady returns, maybe not windfall returns. But I have had windfall returns twice investing in real estate where I was getting back, I want to say I averaged over 35% annualized in one deal, I averaged over 52% annualized in the second deal. Both those deals closed within three years. So I got my money back quickly. And those, to me, that's windfall profit. Investing passively in, in multifamily. So that's my answer. Multifamily is my answer. I'm sorry. I know I'm a multifamily <laughs> syndicator, so I, no one should be surprised by that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's what you like. And, you know, I, I do my own deals you know, actively, but I also, just like you, I use my IRA to invest in others' deals. And it's a great way to invest in real estate that nobody really tells you about when you're first signing up for your IRA and slowly putting money away. You have to learn about self-direction and all that. Yeah. So um, yeah, absolutely. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment? Let's say We'll say in real estate that you've ever made or in general. 
I'm going to tell you right now, I've had some bad uh, experience flipping houses. And so I don't, you know, for anyone out there that does that, I'm going to just say that I wasn't that great at it. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, the model, which is, is a simple model. I mean, you're estimating your buy costs, your rehab costs, and then time it takes to sell and then the anticipated sale price. But uh, usually what happens is there's either an overrun in your rehab or there is a time lag in how quickly you think you're going to turn that over. And I got beat out on the last three houses that we did before I decided that I'm not flipping anymore. One, I broke even. One, I lost money. And then the th third one, I lost a lot of money. Wow. So the, my then... last three deals, as I was exiting out of that world, those last three deals really hurt me. Not to say that people can't flip and be really successful at it, but you're asking me my personal experience. Yeah. And that happens. Yes, that happened with me with flipping. Absolutely. And I have another uh, kind of nail in the flipping coffin is the tax implication, at least, you know, for most people, uh, flipping income is treated as regular income. It's ordinary income. Ordinary, yep, income. ordinary income. Right. So no capital gains. No capital gains. The highest tax rate that you're going to pay in basically any money that you make in real estate, you're going to pay by flipping. And yeah, no, absolutely. People make, I know lots of people that make a lot of money flipping houses, go for it. But yeah, not for me either. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know. That's why I say, I know there's people out there doing it well, but it was not, yeah, it was not my uh, forte. It was not my forte. Yeah. Okay. So my favorite question out of all these three is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing? This is the deep one. And the only reason that it's hard to answer. So let me think, just give me a second because wow, have I learned so many lessons and I learn lessons every day. So I got to think of a big, a really big lesson for what I do. And so I'm out there syndicating, you know, looking for deals and syndicating deals, raising private money and syndicating deals. One of the biggest lessons that I learned, and so it's something I didn't do and I should have been doing from the beginning. And I only learned it probably four years into my, my world of doing multifamily investing. I really only started doing it recently. So this is really speaking to people who want to do what I do and what you do, which is raising money, syndicating your deals from day one. And no, most people are not going to be comfortable doing it. You have to get out there and market yourself from day one, even when you haven't done your first deal. So what I'm saying, and I was not this person, you have to learn about marketing and what it takes to market and what are the strategies when it comes to marketing, because I did not do that. And when I tell you my business grew at a snail's pace, like I'm embarrassed to say I was, I was doing like one deal every two years. You cannot sustain yourself doing one deal every two years. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong until I finally figured out what was wrong. I wasn't willing to get out of my comfort zone immediately. And, you know, blast emails to friends and family and get out there on Facebook. And, you know, people are always like, oh, I have no experience. I have no this. You can go out and market your brand and talk about your business and simply share what you're learning. And you're already doing the first step of marketing, which is getting your name out there. So you could just share your learning experiences, get your name out there so that when you are finally, you know, 
putting forth your first deal, people will already know you. They will have followed you through your journey. They will, uh, you know, trust you more because you, you share your vulnerabilities, you share your mistakes as well as your successes. But the bottom line is you got to get out away from your desk. And I'm not saying that online networking isn't awesome and it, it really does. It really is a catalyst, but you also have to physically get yourself in a car or on a plane and go to these networking events and shake people's hands and talk to them and network. The reason our business has took off and it only took off recently is both myself and my partner, Chris Jackson, who is an introvert. Although once now, if you met him, you would say, there's no way that guy's an introvert. He's a total ham. But he's a tech guy. His, his whole life, he was a tech guy. He owned a tech company. And tech people tend to be much more introverted. They're behind the computer. He'll say they're not super person people. We both got out of our comfort zone, hit the streets, marketing, 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 doing videos, talking to people, doing email blasts, Facebook posts. I mean, getting out there. And our business has blown up. Now, if I had been doing that from day one, you know, where would I be right now, 10 years later? Pretty much better <laughs> off, I will say that, than where I am now. But you know what? That's okay because it's a learning lesson. It's what I can share with people. God takes us through this world and he has plans for us and we grow and learn from from all of our mistakes. I'm, I'm sure of it. So I'm fine with the pace of how things are going right now. But that was a big, big lesson because it's a difficult one because people can hear it and they still may not do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? That That's mm -hmm. why this lesson is so hard because they can intellectually totally get it and say, oh, I totally understand what you're saying. But for them to physically now make that move and do what I'm suggesting you do, it takes a lot. But if you're committed to do this business, I'm saying do that from day one and your business will grow way faster than mine, mine grow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's quite a lot that you said there, a lot of really powerful information yeah, but putting yourself out there is absolutely critical. And in the same breath, you or the same token side of that coin is you can't give your past self too much of a hard time for not knowing what you know now. Because if you, for, let me give you an example. I don't know what, what your answer is going to be to this, but if you knew when you were, I don't know, we'll say 21, what you know now, would you go to law school? because you went to law school, would you make that same decision if you knew everything about real estate that you know right now? Oh man, my inclination is to say, no, I wouldn't go to law school. I, I hated it so much, right? <laughs> so if I know what I know now, I would say no. However, to your point, because I know exactly where you're going. And like I said, God has his plans. Going to law school, even though it was painful for me to go through law school, because it's painful for everyone, law school sucks. And then going into a career that I was not happy with, right? So I practiced mm -hmm. law for years and wasn't happy, and then ultimately transitioned into real estate. The experience and the knowledge that I have, though, having gone to law school has helped me immensely. So if I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't go, but it's darn good that I went because it's helping me so much now. So that's that vicious circle. But to your point, we go through what we go through for a reason and we come out smarter and stronger on the other side of that long tunnel because of it. So yes, cut yourself some slack. If there are learning lessons and mistakes are being made, as long as you're learning from them, 
And these things are awesome too, because again, people are giving advice and they're giving feedback. And sometimes you may have to hear something over and over again before it lands on you. But I applaud people like you who are doing these podcasts and getting this information out to the masses, because I know over time, all of these experienced people that are giving their feedback it is helping the listeners. You know, they're out there, they're listening. Some of these things they're hearing repetitively and, and it will eventually make a difference in the decisions that they make. Yeah. So Keep- thank you, Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be doing this. I'm learning just as much, if not more. I would say certainly I'm learning more doing this than I would just listening. So, you know, whatever it is, I agree. Our past experiences make us who we are today. So... Don't give your past self too much grief for not having done the thing or not having known and, you know, give your past self some slack, but don't give your current self too much slack. You got to hammer on your current self because your current self is going to be your past self someday. And you're going to wish that you hadn't given your past self slack, if that all makes sense. (laughs) Wow. It does. I think I follow that. I hope so. I hope so. No, I mean, without going too much down the rabbit hole, I mean, I went to school for chemical engineering. Even knowing what I know now, I would absolutely do make the same exact decision again, because I feel like I learned a lot of good things along the way. I had a lot of great experiences along the way that helped me learn and grow and all that. So absolutely, I'm, you know, we are where we are today. So what are we going to say? So anyway, without any further ado, where can people get in touch with you and learn more, learn about the deals you're doing? all that good stuff. Krista, K-R-I-S-T-A at sharplineequity.com is my email address. Also sharplineequity.com. You know, you can look us up. You can look the company up, www.sharplineequity.com. Our phone numbers are posted, email addresses. And yeah, we're happy to, to take, you know, anybody has questions, wants to reach out, talk about anything, you know, that I talked with Taylor today. Well, reach out to me. I love meeting new people and and sharing. I'm a sharer. I love it. Now I love it. My past self didn't love it so much. Now I love it. (laughs) Once you get used to it, it becomes more fun. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like what's not in your comfort zone, it eventually becomes your comfort zone. You just have to do it. You have to do it more often. That's all. Oh, yeah. You got to push the line. So thank you for everything today. I, I appreciate your very specific lessons. I agree with what you said much earlier in our conversation that we can read books and whatever to get the high level, you know, glossing over information. But when you get down to brass tacks, we need these specific experiences that people have had so that we learn to look out for things like a water bill in arrears and plan for that or to look out for yield maintenance clauses in our loans or any of these other things that we discussed today. So thank you for those lessons. Thank you so much for having me, Taylor. I really enjoyed it. Hey, I did too. Thanks for everyone. Uh, Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a big help. Helps other people learn about the show. If you know someone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into our little tribe here. Once again, thank you for listening. I hope you have a great day and a great rest of your week. And we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. 